Welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. I'm Tin and Duyeb. On this episode, we are actually going to predict the future, or at least talk about how to do it. As it turns out, we've got better at finding out what happens next, even in these uncertain times, when no one seems sure what will happen in the next five minutes, let alone the next five years. Throughout history, people have tried to predict the future using all sorts of things, from the oracle Paul the Octopus to magic eight balls, which, when I asked mine if it could accurately guess the future, it said, outlook good, so I'm trusting it. It turns out, however, that actually we might all be experts at forecasting what happens if we just use our brains. That's news to me, as I'm not convinced I can even correctly guess how this sentence finishes. Oh, wow, it was there. Well, that was a surprise. So the question today is, is the wisdom of the crowd better than that of experts? Are pollsters or gamblers actually on the money? And we're also going to see if we can solve Brexit by the end of the series. Yes, really. Which is impressive, as when I asked my Magic 8-Ball how Brexit will go, it just went all weird and kind of clouded over and died. Hmm. Anyway, what I can accurately predict is that you're going to love this episode. Let's get some insights on Foresights. Joining me is Alex Berdichevskaya, who's a senior researcher in the Centre for Collective Intelligence Design here at Nesta. Alex, uh, the challenge today is one that has foxed the nation so far, but I believe you've been working on a project that might help us answer it. So what's going to happen next with Brexit? Well, I think uh, during the course of the episode, we'll we'll get to that, or at least different methods for trying to answer that question. Um, maybe one thing that is important to mention from the outset is why we think it's interesting to mobilise groups of people to think about questions like Brexit, where there's a lot of uncertainty. So the team that I'm a part of at Nesta, the Centre for Collective Intelligence Design, is all about thinking how we can better design processes that mobilise data insights, information in order to help us make better decisions, in order to generate more novel solutions. And so the wisdom of crowds principle is something that we find really interesting. I guess for us, Brexit was an opportunity to test out some of the the methodology behind wisdom of the crowds, which claims that actually you can have a group of uninformed generalists make equally as valid predictions as individual experts in certain circumstances. And that's what this project is about for us. So how does it work? So we are partnering throughout 2019 with an online platform called Good Judgment Open. And that platform has come into being after a research project which looked at the wisdom of crowds in their success in generating predictions about geopolitical events in comparison to intelligence analysts. And so what happens is that we set questions on the platform and anyone can sign up. For example, we had earlier this year a question that asked, what will happen with regards to Article 50 by March 31st? And there were a number of options which were all mutually exclusive. And so people had to assign probabilistic estimates, so probabilities as to which one of the options was most likely to occur. Would there be an extension? Would the UK crash out without a deal? And so all of them in total need to add up to 100%, uh, which... I think sometimes people struggle with this idea of assigning probabilities to events, but it's a really useful exercise to go through because it makes you question some of your assumptions and why you think certain things might happen. 
So people can see it as they answer. They can see how the probability is changing. Exactly. So everyone puts in their own individual estimates and then it gets aggregated with other participants on the platform to generate a crowd consensus. So it helps you to consider other options, which I think is quite different to a lot of the current political debate that we see online, which I think has been reported widely, can be very polarising. Can you see people actively changing their minds quite a lot of the time? So this is something that we hope to get a little bit more insight into at the end of the year when we're able to do a little bit more analysis of the kind of patterns of interaction on the platform. But in general, we've been tracking the way that the consensus changes. And yeah, people do change their minds. And sometimes it seems to be more the result of external events. So if there's a lot of attention to Brexit in the media, for example, we can see quite drastic changes reflected on the platform. But that's an important point. So people can continuously update their predictions based on new information that comes in until the closing date of the question. So very important question is how accurate has it been so far? I'm so relieved to actually say that our crowd has been fantastic. So (laughs) the wisdom of crowds uh, principle has held up. And again, it might be these unique kind of circumstances where a lot of the circumstances around Brexit are very unpredictable. And so it is kind of anyone's, anyone's game. But for example, in relation to the Article 50 question that I mentioned earlier, from basically when we put the question on the platform as soon as it went live, there was quite a decisive swing that people thought there would be an extension. This was in early January. And with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we kind of say, oh, yeah, well, that must have been obvious. But at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty and no one really knew what was going to happen. And our crowd correctly predicted with quite a high degree of confidence that it would be an extension. And that only consolidated and became stronger. So there was a higher percentage likelihood assigned during the whole time the question was open. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, So we're recording this on October the 16th. And you've had a question on the Good Judgment Project between May the 3rd, and I believe it finishes on the 1st of November, on which is going to happen first in relation to the Brexit process. So I believe the options are whether there'll be an extension to the Article 50 period, whether the UK will leave the EU without a deal or if Article 50 will be revoked. And I should say that at the moment, the no one seems to have a clue, especially not today. We, it could, we could find out in the next few hours. We don't know at the moment. What is the crowd currently predicting, Alex? So I just want to caveat that with actually it's a lot more complicated, that question. Based on the success of that first round of the question around Article 50, we decided to include a few other factors that might be the thing that happened first in relation to Brexit. So we also have the option of there will be a general election that's that's called or that there will be a call for a referendum. And out of all of the options, one of them has to happen first. And of course, we do have those options that are related to Article 50. But I won't uh, keep you in suspense any longer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So again, our crowd at the moment is predicting that there will be an extension. And that has been pretty steady since we first published the question. But I have to say there was a blip 
throughout September. I don't know if if you remember a month ago as things changed pretty quickly in the world of politics these days. But there was so much attention in the media to Boris Johnson's approach and uh, particularly his declaration that there would be no way he would ask for an extension. And so I think that affected the crowd, but they've swung back to their initial gut instinct. It's very interesting. We will have to see what happens. Thank you so much. Of course, using fancy crowd predictions isn't the only way to predict results. Sometimes you have to have a bit of skin in the game. And people who know all about putting their money where their mouth is are, well, me when I'm eating chocolate coins, but more often are betting companies. How do the gambling firms predict the future of Brexit? Do they have any insider information? We spoke to Subject Bakshi from Smarkets, a betting exchange, about what gambling can tell us about events that might unfold. Smarkets run political prediction markets on political events where you can trade the news. You can trade the likelihood of something happening or not happening or any details about that thing. Bookies are there to try to make money from their customers. It's a well understood relationship they have. They put a margin on the bets they offer. So the actual odds that they offer are not the true probabilities and probabilities of an event happening, but really something that factors into their business model. As a political prediction market, we don't add a bookies margin onto the prices that are available. So the prices that are on our market are the closest to the implied probability of the event happening. Betting exchange allows you to be the bookie. You can get in on either side of a particular contract, bet for it, against it, and then you're matched through our site with another user. With a bookie, you're betting on one side of a bet on a point of time, and you're stuck with that bet. So you're saying that this will happen by a certain date, or this will happen per se. With us, you can trade in and out of that position. So you can say, well, I think the price is high, but the thing is unlikely to happen. So I'll buy in at a particular point, I'll wait till the price changes, and I'll trade out. And that kind of trading brings in a different kind of behavior and interaction with our markets than a bookmaker. The difference between polling and prediction markets are that polling asks the person what they would do, and then aggregates that answer. And certain models will look at things like likelihood of voting, for instance, if it's talking about voting. We'll factor in the fact that young people vote less than older people and then try to present a kind of hybrid result based on what they've asked at a particular point of time, what the person has thought is acceptable to give us an answer, and then the aggregation of the model of how that might work. We ask the users or the traders, what do you think is likely to happen, not what they support? And they then take into account everything else they know and other bits of information they think are relevant and will buy into the market at a certain point. And where they move the price too high or too low, someone will move in and correct that price to where they think it should be. So the volatility of markets when they're moving up and down will show you that there is a difference of opinion. And when there's stability, you have something approaching consensus amongst many different people. Polling does not try to seek a consensus amongst many other people. It is more a prediction. Ours um, looks in the wider sense of what is the implied probability of something happening and what is the general consensus amongst everyone trading on the market as to what the result will be. So what the markets are saying, we're recording this in the middle of October, is that the UK will not leave the EU on the 31st of October. There's an 80% implied probability that it will not happen. Now, what happened on that market is quite interesting because the prices, I mean, no has always really been the favoured contract, except for a very brief period in January. But the actual prices widened um, in the last few months 
to stay around 80%. So it's been going down to maybe as low as 67.57%, but now, you know, up to 80%. And, you know, consequently, yes, it's dropped to an appropriate amount too. I'm looking further than that. When the UK officially leaves the European Union market, we have not before 2021 and January to December 2020 at a combined implied probability of 70%, which means that leaving in 2019 is only trading at 34%, which is a, a very low possibility. But there's been so much volatility on the market, which really shows the fact that people really aren't confident. The kind of consensus is still building around this. We haven't had that long period of stability where you can say with confidence that's happening. That was Subject Bakshi from Smarkets. Alex, where would you put your money, the crowd or the bookies? Again, I'm going to evade <laughs> that. But I think what's interesting to us here is, again, the comparison between methods. So one of the things that we are trying to look at throughout the year, the experiments that we're running, is how well the crowd performs in relation to other tested methods for making predictions. And what's really nice with Smarkets is that we've been able to work with them to put up questions on their platform, which are the exact mirror of the ones that we put up on the Good Judgment Open platform. And so there is that ability to make the direct comparison between the prediction polls of the Good Judgment Open method and the prediction markets of Smarkets. I think it's interesting. I mean, I should go for the crowd. I, I, I have strong <laughs> faith. They, they haven't let us down so far. And actually, we've made a comparison with Smarkets already. We had a short-term question which looked at the outcomes of the European parliamentary elections, specifically looking at the vote share that Change UK and the Brexit Party would get. And there were some interesting differences. I mean, both Smarkets and our crowd predicted correctly or assigned the highest likelihood to the correct bin or the correct range of percentages that the Brexit party would get. But there was a higher assignment of probability to the Brexit party getting a higher vote share than they ended up getting on Smarkets. So our crowd seemed a little bit less certain that they would get very high amount of vote share, which they, they didn't get that high amount of vote share, whereas people on the Smarkets platform were convinced or more convinced that that might happen. So I think there's also interesting methodological differences in terms of how the opinions of many different people are aggregated across the different methods. And actually, there's been some research which has compared the two methods directly and shown that there's kind of complementary intelligence that you get from each one of them. So actually, maybe the approach we should be using is more a combination of both and generating a kind of joint estimate based on those two different approaches. Right, so spreading your bets is what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not just bookies and Nesta that are trying to guess what's next. I'm joined by Chris Curtis, who's a political research manager at polling company YouGov, and Professor Chris Hanratty, who is Professor of Politics at Royal Holloway University of London. Chris and Chris. Um, we're going to have to work that out. Um, you're both experienced in trying to predict the future of politics. Um, so, uh, Chris C., uh, could you start out by explaining how traditional polling like that done at YouGov works? So I think... The first thing to note is that traditional polling, you know, in, in its in its rawest sense, doesn't actually 
predicts the future. It tries to accurately capture where public opinion currently is. And we sort of do that by regularly surveying the public um, about what they think, how they might vote in an election, if there were an election tomorrow, how they might vote in a referendum, etc. And very importantly, we try and make sure that the people that we're speaking to are representative of the British public as a whole. So we have the right number of men and women and old people and young people, etc. And increasingly, that kind of data is being used to predict the future, because obviously, if we understand where the public is now, and we also look at things like historical precedents in terms of, you know, the way public opinions moved in the past or the effect that events have had, in moving public opinion, um, those two things can be merged together and, and things like the betting markets and the other things that you've discussed. It allows them to, to think about how this might move and change and how, how events might unfold going forwards. And what sort of questions do you ask people? Is it multiple choice? How do you get the answers that you get? Uh, so I, we, we do a range, we do a, a wide range of questions. So if you take voting intention, for example, how would you vote in a general election tomorrow? And then you have a range of options based on the main parties. Um, and the the, you know, the the questions that we ask, it's very important to make sure they're balanced. So you're not leading respondents in a particular direction. And also you have a full range of options and it's easy for the public to understand. Okay, so you've probably heard from Alex that Nesta's been asking what's most likely to happen next in Brexit. What does the YouGov research say so far? So we basically reached this point now where the public have kind of lost faith in Boris Johnson's ability to, as he just said, do or die achieve Brexit by October 31st. In our most recent poll, uh, the majority of the public, 54%, think it's unlikely that Brexit will be done by then, compared to just a quarter, 26%, who think that that's likely. And that means that if, if it's not going to be done by then, then you know, the public reckon that we're, uh, we're heading for an extension. And what would the question have been then? Would that have been do you think there's going to be an extension? The, the question for that one was how likely or unlikely do you think it is that Brexit will be done by, by the end of this month? So unlikely. Unlikely. <laughs> Professor Chris, you are in academia, so you have quite a different approach to this. Um, how do politicians and academics like yourself try to predict outcomes? Well, if we start with politicians, I think politicians are human beings like the rest of us. They try to predict using the information available to them. So some will be decent forecasters, others ones will be pretty poor. But it's not always in a politician's interest to be a good forecaster. If you take Nigel Farage, anyone who says that the Brexit party is going to win a majority of seats and that Farage will be PM, that's a really poor forecast, right? I'm, I'm pretty confident saying that's not going to happen. But it's not in Nigel Farage's interests to say, oh, no, I, I, I'm concerned about accuracy in forecasting and I want to tamp down on that forecast. So I think politicians, as private consumers of information, they're probably much like the rest of us. OK, maybe some of them are commissioning private polling, but private polling is broadly similar to the kinds of public polling that you see. There's no magic formula that makes it any more accurate. So as private individuals, they're much like the rest of us. With their public face on, sometimes it's in their interest to, to let people believe what is convenient for them. They must do, uh, for example, when uh, Theresa May went for a snap election, that was based on the polls. So is that what politicians are perhaps using that situation as we see in kind of tumultuous events at the moment? Might an election possibility be based on if one party is doing better than another so it seems beneficial to go for something like that? Sure. Decisions about elections are going to be based on polls and those polls will perform a variety of different functions for the parties. First, they'll inform parties as to their general level of support. But 
the impression that you're going to get on a party's general level of support from private polling is is going to be very similar to what you'd get just looking at the public data. Where I think it's different might be how that support plays out across the country, whether there are particular areas or more specifically particular seats where the party is doing better than you would otherwise have predicted. So that might enable politicians to say, look, I know the polls are good for us now, but we've got a big problem in these regions, so actually it looks a little bit less rosy than you might think, or the other way around. So that extra information might help at the margins, but the the broad tenor of that debate is still going to be set by information that's broadly similar to what's out there in the public. With Brexit, has that changed how people behave? Have you noticed that maybe it's changed how political predictions work? It's made things a lot harder. <laughs> I think Brexit is is a profoundly destabilising force in British politics because it cuts both Labour and Conservative parties, not quite across the middle, but it, it cuts them into different factions. And when you've got a destabilising force, that makes it more difficult to predict. The simplest way of, of predicting what's going to happen tomorrow is well, what happened today or what happened yesterday, right? Is it going to rain today? Well, it rained yesterday. Probably yes, right? I don't need any training in meteorology to do that. <laughs> but if if things are very, very unstable, then people's past behaviours aren't necessarily a good guide to what they're going to do today, tomorrow, or in three, six, nine months' time. So it's that destabilising effect on the whole system which makes things a lot more difficult when it comes to election prediction. There's also a separate issue about, well, how do we predict the result of the negotiations itself, given that this is a one-off event? We haven't ever had this before. There's no historical record to, to base it on. And so the event itself is unpredictable. So what would be an example of good practice in political predictions then, and, and how do you sort of see things going forward? I think a lot of the principles that you would expect from uh, good political forecasters are also applicable to forecasters in general. So, you know, make a note of your predictions, revisit them. If you've got multiple outcomes, try and work out, you know, what is the probability that I'd place on that? Maybe you're looking at information from betting markets as well and you're trying to work out what probabilities they imply. Um, So it's all about creating a a kind of public documented set of predictions and looking back at those and and working out ways to improve. It doesn't always work. And one of the problems, particularly in, in polling, is that the kind of adjustments that you make based on the last election might not serve you so well in the current or future elections because it's always a moving target. But if you've got that trail of of past predictions and can look back at that, then you ought to be doing something better. Thank you. So that's betting, academic research, polling and using the people. So now to the real question, which way of doing things is the best and which one of us is going to predict the winner correctly? So what are the advantages of each system? You've all heard how each one works. What do you think? So when it comes to the crowd forecasting through good judgment, what is quite unique, I think, is this ability to keep updating your forecast. And the people who are really engaged with the platform, that's what they do. As soon as they have new information come in, they update their forecast. There's also quite a lot of supporting materials to help them to become 
better forecasters. So from the original research, you have um, this idea of tracking, teaming and training being really important. So tracking, being aware of what your performance is. I think Chris mentioned that earlier. So I think from a polling perspective, I think it's worth thinking about what we're good at and what we're bad at. I think what we are good at, and I accept not perfect at, is um, capturing where public opinion is right now. And for a lot of other people who do a lot more sort of forecasting, my aim in my job is to provide those people with the best information so that they can use that to try and make the most accurate predictions possible. But that doesn't mean that polling is very good at in itself predicting the future. We don't have a crystal ball. And importantly, uh, members of the public themselves aren't very good at predicting how they will react to events or good at predicting their own behaviour in the future. If you were to ask the public uh, what washing up liquid they'd buy, for example, they might say, oh, I'd, I'd really like it to be fair trade or this and that. And then they get to the shop and we know, for example, there's a massive bias towards people buying things on the middle shelf. But in a survey question, people aren't going to say, oh, I'm really going to buy the washing up liquids on the middle shelf because people aren't that good at predicting their behaviour. And we see that in, um, in politics as well. Another point I would make that I think is often worth considering when talking about this is even the best forecasters in the world are often going to be wrong. And we need to really sort of accept that point and accept our own limitations, particularly in politics at the moment, where everything is so uncertain. And just because of how complex it is, we do have limited amounts of information. We're often going to be wrong. And you mentioned earlier, for example, the 2017 general election. Theresa May entered that campaign with a 24-point lead in the poll, looking to have a super majority if things held. And then we had an event that happened with the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, which was massively unexpected. Nobody could have possibly seen that coming, no matter how clever or good forecaster they were, and was completely unprecedented in the entire history of my industry. So even if you were the best forecaster in the world, you wouldn't have been able to see that kind of thing coming. So we do have to accept our limitations on on forecasting as well, I think. So one of the ways of trying to get around those limitations is by pushing people not just to say, I think this is the most likely outcome, but to assign probabilities Mm -hmm. to to different types of outcomes. So if you go back to the the 2017 election, I guess lots of people would have said the most likely outcome is a Conservative majority, but there would have been people who would have assigned different probabilities to some kind of tail risk of a a hung parliament. And maybe some people would have been super confident and said, well, there's 0% chance of that happening and I'll eat a book if that, that transpires. And others might have said, well, actually, you know, I've got to bear in mind the errors at this point from the election and I've got to make sure it's all well calibrated. So I'm going to say it's a, a 5 or 10% chance. And I, I guess one of the attributes of a good forecaster is being really attentive to and always examining the probability of those less likely outcomes. Uh, I think it's it's a tremendous source of discipline to say, okay, here are all the logically possible outcomes. The probabilities of all of these have to add up to 100. So unless I'm going to stake 100 on, you know, conservative majority or whatever the the crowd thinks is the most likely outcome, I've got to assign some probability to these outcomes, even if I think they're completely nuts. Mm. 
you know, sometimes the world gives us completely nuts answers. But we also have to accept that the public, you know, when thinking about forecasters, and I, I think it's an important point to make because increasingly we're turning against experts um, and there's this, you know, increasing, well, experts have got things wrong and stuff. And I think part of that is a lack of acceptance of the fact that things that have a 5 to 10% chance of happening happen 5 to 10% of the time. <laughs> so there are going to be things that are very, very unlikely to happen that do happen. And that doesn't mean that experts are suddenly stupid because they thought that that was unlikely. It's the fact that unlikely things happen uh, sometimes and, and we shouldn't be turning against experts because of that fact. I think that's a very good point, actually, this ability to engage with probabilistic reasoning. It's something that is quite a skill. You need to develop it and train it. And it's about the way that you ask the questions as well. I think what's another interesting difference between polling and the approach that we use is the idea of incentives. So a lot of the people who participate in Good Judgment, they're incentivized from this idea of improving their forecasting ability. And also maybe even this kind of social aspect of exchanging information with their peers. Whereas I don't know, what, what would you say the kind of main incentive to report accurately is when you're polling people? Uh, that's kind of an open question for me. I think there's a lot of disincentives to for it, maybe. I don't know. Well, one of the things with, with polling is that people often don't give their answers a lot of thought. And so when you ask them really difficult questions like, you know, what, what do you think is the likelihood of this happening? They won't answer that question, which is kind of hard and requires you to know a bit about politics, but they might give you something like, well, this is what I, I want to happen. So I'll just say that's, that's probably going to happen because the world treats me kindly. <laughs> so very often people give top of the head answers and, you know, sometimes those those work. Uh, other times when you're asking people to engage in that kind of probabilistic reasoning, that's a real habit that you have to work at. Mm. So there might be might be occasions where just asking people works, might be some more abstruse issue where you have to, to work at it, share, pull information, and it becomes much harder. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that, this approach of trying to judge each situation and context and thinking, what would I gain from taking these different methods and combining them in different ways? What could each of them highlight to me? There's a really interesting project that actually uses also the Good Judgment Open platform called the Early Warning Project, which is about forecasting the likelihood of mass atrocities. And what they do is combine expert ranking of countries, three statistical models and crowd forecasting in order to generate a risk estimate for, I think, 160 countries worldwide. So their real kind of ensemble approach of realising there are different types of information that we might be getting from each of these methods and they're all valuable in their own way. So it's a way of just sort of bringing all the prediction methods together to get a the most accurate result. So at YouGov, what we do now is we include political attention in our model. We make sure, we force ourselves to make sure we're surveying people who aren't interested in politics as much as people who are because of the reasons that you just stated, that people who are interested in politics are more likely to be taking part in research. But it is this weird bind. You have to be interested enough mm. to swat up on it and learn but all these different weird factors. And yeah. distant from, yeah. So you're... you're trying to attain some kind of God's eye view on the world, completely impartial, unbiased, whilst at the same time being a human being with, you know, particular commitments in your life. 
And, and there is some evidence in academic literature, I'm not, you, you may be more aware of it than I am, that actually the, having access to more information sometimes can make you a worse predictor than having less because actually as humans we're not very good at processing new information um, and we're not, yeah, if, if, you, if you haven't worked on the sort of the, the coming up with the probabilistic estimates and, and trying to beat out your biases and stuff, actually information can bias you because you take in the information that already supports your worldview and you dismiss the information that doesn't or whatever it is. So information isn't always um, as valuable or to, to a lot of people who, you know, who maybe aren't so good at forecasting, information isn't always very good at, at pushing you in the, in the right direction. Is that what happened in the, cause in the 2015 election? There was a lot of criticism about how polls seemed to completely not see that there was going to be a Conservative majority. And I think there were a couple that did, and there were, but the majority didn't. Was that due to perhaps focusing too much on what people already knew and, and not being able to guess the unpredictability? And what's changed since then to make sure that doesn't happen again or, or try to make sure it doesn't happen again? So the polling was off in the 2015 general election and the main reason for that is that the people that we were surveying weren't representative of the wider population. The main reasons for that were sort of thing we touched on a couple of minutes ago that there are certain people that like taking part in polls too much and at the time, us pollsters, and we you know, in hindsight fully admit it and we put a lot of resources into correcting for that mistake, but at the time we weren't very good at, uh, at beating out that bias and being aware of it. So it was, we were talking to too many people who were interested in politics. We were talking to too many people who had been to university and that was creating those problems. So our big effort over the past few years has been to try and solve that problem, to, to balance out our, our survey samples on those kind, of, um, those kind of things. And Professor Chris, do you see any kind of stabilising of, of how polls work or how these predictions work. I say when we're past Brexit, that may not happen for 50-odd years. Um, but, but is, it, you know, these things that cut through party lines and, and normal political loyalties, they're going to continue to make things turbulent. Yeah, I I think this is a really difficult time to be forecasting anything in British politics. I think because Brexit is going to go on for many years, it's going to continue to act as a source of, of turbulence. And that makes any kind of forecasting endeavour really, really tricky, whether we're talking about you know the, the impact on politics or the process of, of Brexit itself. And those two things are, are linked. You know, we, we won't know the political fallout until we know more about how the process is going to develop. So... It's a forecasting problem on top of another forecasting problem. It's forecasting problems all the way down. <laughs> so, uh, just based on everything we've discussed, what are your three Brexit predictions? If I could just get one line from each of you, where, what do you think will happen next? You, you're asking us for a, a single most likely outcome <laughs> after everything we've said. Yep. <laughs> you can put probabilities on it if you like. I... I'm going to be an absolute wuss and say that there's a 40% chance of, of a no deal. Now, that's that's me being a wuss because 40% sounds like a reasonable number. You know, I'm not saying it's the most likely thing, but if it if it does happen, I'm at least saying, well, there was a big probability attached to it. So that's that's my wimpy probabilistic prediction. Okay, Chris? Yeah, I mean, we also, while we're filming this, everything is kind of changing by the minute. We're on the day that uh, Boris Johnson is is heading out to try and, you know, potentially have a deal in a few hours' time, potentially not. But, yeah, I think I think one way or another, in the long term, looking back, no deal is, is probably the most likely outcome. Again, not majority, but it's the most likely outcome. OK, so, Alex, down to you. Um, I think I answered this earlier. I'm going to stick with my guns and the crowd and say that 
the most likely outcome um, of all the ones that we list, at least in relation to this question, is that there will be an extension of Article 50 past the end of October. Thank you very much to all our guests today, Chris Curtis, Christopher Hanretti and Alex Berdichevskaya. Alex, if people want to try their hand at predicting the future, not just of Brexit, but what do they need to do to get involved? So we're running the challenge until the end of the year and we would welcome as many people to sign up as possible. So please go to goodjudgment.com forward slash Nesta to register to be a part of our experiments. And we have questions which aren't only related to Brexit, but through a partnership with BBC Future, we're asking a lot of questions about science and technology generally. So whether there will be more CRISPR babies born this year or whether there's the likelihood of a SpaceX commercial space flight into 2019. So there's a lot of different topic areas that we're exploring through this method. Brilliant. And we'll add that link to the show notes too. Who knew that that would all be so fascinating? Uh, Well, the crowd probably. And of course, us here at Nesta, which is much better than my eight ball, because when I asked it, it just said, buy milk. Hmm, I might have to pop it in the bin. We'll be returning to these predictions at the end of this series, so make sure you subscribe so that we can find out if the crowd were accurate as to what did happen with Brexit. The podcast will be back next week, though, when I'll be speaking to Nesta's outgoing CEO, Jeff Mulgan, in what we like to call our Jeffisode, which I predict you're going to find a fantastically interesting listen. Let's see if I'm right. Tell a friend to like and subscribe to this podcast, and I know for certain that we'll all be very happy about it. Future Curious from Nesta bringing bold ideas to life and straight into your ears.